so we're in the second week of this series, Reconciler's Journey, where we've been looking and will continue to look at, not only this week, but the next two weeks, what it means to live a life of a reconciler. And uh, last week, we, we looked at a first step, and so this week, we're going to look at, at the second step and, and that journey. Uh, but I wanted to share with you a story I read this week, and it was a story about this couple that had been married for 60 years, and they had been in love for all 60 years, and, and they, they, they claim that they never had secrets or kept secrets from one another except for one. When they got married, the, the woman had a shoebox, and she asked her husband, don't ever look in my shoebox, and don't ever ask me what's in the shoebox. And he's like, okay, I can do that. And years went by, and he actually forgot about the shoebox. And it was shortly after their 60th uh, anniversary that his wife was diagnosed with a grave illness. And he was visiting her in the hospital and went home that evening and was sitting on the bed, and he looked up and saw the shoebox in the top of the closet and thought, if there's a time to know what's in it, now's the time. And so he goes and he reaches up and he grabs his shoebox, but he doesn't open it. He goes back to the hospital and he sits down with his wife and he says, I thought maybe this might be a good time for you to share with me what's in the shoebox. And she's like, I think this would be a good time. And so she opens the shoebox and there inside the shoebox are two crocheted dolls and a wad of cash totaling $95,000. And he's like shocked, as, as you would expect, right? And so he's like, okay, what, what, what is this? And she says, well, the night before we were married, my grandmother pulled me aside and she said, honey, when you have difficulties, when you have conflict in your marriage, I want you to promise me that you will work very hard to reconcile. However, if you cannot reconcile, then my advice to you is keep your mouth shut and crochet a doll. To which the, the man was just overcome with emotion because apparently there have only been two times in their life where they were unable to reconcile differences. And he says, okay, that explains the doll, but what's with the cash? And she says, well, every time I crocheted a doll, I went to the craft fair and sold it for $5. <laughs> See, the moral of the story is don't talk about it, right? Because it works out in the end. Just stuff it, just keep it in, don't address it. That's some of the ways we address conflict in our life, right? We just don't talk about it, we avoid it, like the plague. We'd rather get a shot than talk about what's bothering us, and so we just keep our mouth shut. Or sometimes we go to the very other extreme. Right? I was reading a story about this fair, this carnival, sort of this festival that they held, hold in Lakeville, Minnesota every year. It's the Panoprog Festival, and, and they do a beauty pageant. It's not a beauty pageant, it's a scholarship program. And they, they hold this scholarship program every year, and they, they sell brats, and they sell beer, and there's carnival rides, and there's a baby crawl competition. I mean, what could go wrong with that, right? So they line all these kids up, and then they have a finish line, and they set them free, and the first child to crawl past the finish line is declared that year's Panoprog baby crawl champion. Well, in 2015, young Berkeley, 10 months old, clearly crosses the finish line first. And everybody's cheering, especially mom, because young Berkeley has now won her first title, Panoprog baby crawl champion. Although over in the corner, all the officials are sort of huddled around. 
And they come over and, and they inform Berkeley's mom that since Berkeley did not adhere to the rules by crawling on both hands and both knees, she was disqualified. Controversy. So what do you think mom does? What would you do? Right, would you just stuff it? Would you just hold it in? Not mom. Mom told the newspapers and everybody that would listen. Why? Because that's how we handle conflict. We marshal enough people around me. I tell enough people my story. I get enough people on my side. And when I get enough people on my side, then we come to you and show you where you're wrong, how you've wronged me. And you will know, you will know that I'm right just by the sheer number of people that will point their finger at you. And that's how we handle conflict. A lot of times it's to those extremes. We don't talk about it or we talk about it at nauseum. And neither one really go any length in reconciling relationships. All it does is exacerbate the conflict and we just continue in this ever, never ending cycle of conflict. Our country, our churches are full of this spiritual dysfunction relationships broken and, and divided. And I'm not just talking about over like personal differences, you know, or just like disciplinary matters. I'm talking about personality conflicts where there's a perceived or actual wronging of someone else or a slight of someone else or a look, right? Or cutting in front of me or a whisper. There's this wrong that's happened, and as a result, brothers and sisters are estranged, children are disenfranchised or, or rebel, and in-laws divide, drive wedges in between relationships, never-ending, and husbands and wives constantly nagging at each other or remaining cold and distant. And in that conflict, in that area of conflict, in this culture of conflict, could you ever expect spiritual transformation? It's just a hotbed, a hot house for conflict. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we're called to a different path. We're called to follow Jesus. We're called to follow the reconciler and to take a reconciler's journey, and it's not easy but it's the only recourse, it's the only solution to ending this never-ending cycle of conflict. Before we get to that subject, would you pray with me this morning? Almighty God, we gather in the name of your son, Jesus. Father, we come before you this morning and, and we have relationships, we have family relationships, we have relationships in our neighborhood that are just so dysfunctional right now, that are so torn and, and tattered and, and that we just don't see a way. I mean, we've been working and trying and praying and I pray this morning, Father, that you would show us a way, that the words I speak, the meditation of my heart would be your words, that your words would give us hope and your words would give us instruction and, and show us the next step in this journey. Father, we so desire to follow after your son. We so desire for there to be reconciliation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, last week we opened up the book of Genesis and we went to a story in chapter 25 where we learned the story of uh, the family of Abraham and Sarah and their son Isaac and his wife Rebecca and really their two sons, Esau and Jacob. And we looked and we learned that those two sons, those two grandsons of Abraham really didn't like each other. And they fought even in the womb, they didn't get along. And their parents, Isaac and Rebecca, really didn't help things much. They made things worse. But we also learned last week that that first step in reconciliation, that first step in the journey is understanding that God himself has taken the first step. That God himself has reconciled us unto himself so that we could be with him. And he's taken the greatest of steps and has done so because he loves us. That first step in reconciliation is understanding that God himself has taken the first step, which brings us to the second step, the step that we wanna look at today. And to look at that, we wanna go further into this story of these two sons and this family. And we're going to look at a story that you heard part of read earlier uh, in Genesis 25, where we see these two brothers talking about this thing called a birthright, right? You saw that Esau was out hunting and Apparently he didn't kill anything because he comes back hungry and he walks into his brother's tent and his brother's making this nice stew, probably a lentil stew. And he comes in and he's famished and he says, give me some of that stew. And his brother says, sell me your birthright. And Esau said, I'm gonna die. What is that birthright to me anyway? Give me some of the stew, I'll sell you my birthright. And he says, no, 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 <laughs> I know you. Swear to me on oath that you will sell me your birthright for this bowl of soup. And Esau says, fine. It's not anything to me anyway. Here, give me the soup. What are they arguing over? This thing of birthright, why is that so important to Jacob and why is it so unimportant to Esau? Well, the birthright that they're arguing over is the right of the firstborn, the blessing of the firstborn son. The firstborn son would have special privileges in this ancient Hebrew family. The firstborn son, first of all, would get double the portion of inheritance of all his siblings. So he would be the most well-off. He would get the bounty from the inheritance. But also beyond that, he would then be considered to be the head of the household. He would then take his father's position as the head of the house. He would, in essence, be the head of his mother and the head of his siblings. They would be lesser. He would be greater. They would serve him. That's what Jacob wanted, right? He wanted that from the womb. Remember, he came out grabbing the heel. What he's wanted all along. And now he's got an opportunity to get it. And Esau says, fine, take it. It's not anything to me anyway. You can have it. And so he sells him his birthright. But then it sort of gets worse from there. We see in chapter 27, as we turn a little bit later in the story, we see in 27 that Isaac, their father, calls Esau into his tent. And he informs Esau that he's going to give him the blessing of the firstborn. But he wants him to go out and get some food. He wants him to go out and hunt and bring him back an animal and cook it just like he likes. And then he will bring him in and he will give him the blessing of the firstborn. And so Esau's like, yes, out he goes. But at the door is his mother, Rebecca, and she overhears. And if you remember from last week, Jacob is her favorite. 
And so she's like, well, this can't happen. So she runs and she devises a plan and she brings Jacob into the plan and says, your father's gonna give the blessing of the firstborn to your brother and that can't happen, so here's what I need you to do. I need you to go into his tent and pretend like you're Esau. You know, your dad is old and he can't see real well, so you could fool him. He's like, he'll never go for it. He goes, no, here's what you do. She says, here's what you do. You go put on his clothes and you go put some animal skins on your arm because he's hairier than a goat. And then you want to go in and you can fool him. I'll make the stew, you get dressed, and we can do this. So he does. Takes the stew, dresses as Esau, walks in and says, hey, Dad, I'm your favorite. Here I am. And he said, kind of see in Isaac that he doesn't sound quite right. He's not quite convinced. So he runs through some tests like touching him and smelling him. And, and he says, are you sure you're my son Esau? And Jacob's like, yep. That's who I am. And so convinced, Isaac blesses him and gives him the blessing of the firstborn. And out goes Jacob. And in comes Esau. Hey, Dad, I'm here with your meal. And he's like, wait a minute, who was, who's this? He says, well, I'm Esau. And he says, no, Esau was just here. He's like, no, I'm Esau. And, and right then, Isaac knows, I've been duped. It was Jacob that I blessed. But like Will's today, when read... It's the last will and testament, that's what goes. Well, mostly when siblings argue over that stuff, they go to court. But here in this situation, that's what goes. Once he gives the blessing, the blessing is given. It cannot be returned. It cannot be revoked. And that's what he tells Esau. And Esau is like livid. He's like, you gotta have something for me. He's like, I can't. I, I gave it to your brother. To which we heard read Esau's reply well, I'm just going to wait for him to die because when my dad dies, he's dead. I'm going to kill him for what he's done. As I should have killed him long ago, I'll wait till dad's dead and then I'm going to kill him. Well, standing at the door again was Rebecca and she hears about this and she goes and tells, Isaac, or goes and tells Jacob, your brother is really upset with you, right? So we need to get you off and, and out of here so he doesn't kill you. And so she sends him off to her brother Laban and, and convinces Isaac to send him off and she says, I'll call for you when everything settles down. Sounds like an episode of 48 hours, doesn't it? Just something that could come out of these modern day headlines of this family dysfunction of conflict and how something started small and just grew into treachery. And you're looking at this family and you have to be wondering, like, could anything repair these burned bridges? Was there anything that they could have done? Was there anything they could have done to have, like, circumvented this thing of progressing to this point? And I would say, yes, they could have. And it goes by this word, repentance. There could have been repentance, and I believe it would have stopped that cycle of conflict. Now, when we think of repentance, we think of, I'm sorry. We think of contrition, right? When I've wronged you, I say, I'm sorry. And I'm, and I'm truly sorry. And that's kind of where repentance ends for us. But this biblical understanding of the word repentance goes beyond that. The Hebrew word and the, and the Greek word both carry with it a deeper meaning. 
And, and it kind of is explained this way. It's literally a changing of mind, not about individual plans, intentions, or beliefs, but rather a change in the whole personality from a sinful course of action to God. The way I would describe it is like, I'm headed in this direction, and I've wronged you, and I say I'm sorry, and I'm contrite, and I turn from that action toward, from my sinful direction, and I go in the direction God is calling me to go. I change my course of action. But what we typically see is this. I am so sorry that I wronged you. I, I, I truly am. I, I'm so sorry. And we just keep going in that direction. And we say again, well, you know how I am. I'm stubborn, I'm pig-headed, and I'm, I'm, I fly off the handle really quick, and I'm really sorry. And we just keep going in that direction. And we never stop and consider that maybe the direction that we're headed is the problem. Maybe I have a problem. Maybe I am the problem. Repentance is, is dropping to our knees and admitting before God of our sin, admitting that we have wronged someone, and not continuing in that pattern, but actually breaking the pattern by turning and going in the opposite direction. That's repentance. Saying I'm sorry and continuing to do the same thing is not repentance. It's a turning from that behavior. It's a turning from that action that where true repentance. And repentance could have short-circuited this cycle of conflict. And so when you look at this story of, of my way, right, Jacob certainly wanted it his way. If we think about these characters, who would you point your finger at and say, boy, if they could have just repented, if they, if they would have, it would have stopped the whole thing. You know, and oftentimes if you look and you want to place the blame at one of these characters, oftentimes we start right here with Jacob, right? Because his name means deceiver. I mean, it's clear. He's the guy, right? He went into his dad and he lied and said, nope, he's Esau. And he stole the blessing. If anybody should have repented, it was Jacob. When asked if he was Esau, all he had to do was say, Father, I'm sorry. You're correct. I'm not Esau. I'm your son Jacob, and I, I would, I'm, I'm here after the birthright. But that's not what he did, because it's the birthright. But then some of you might think, well, wait a minute. How about Rebecca? Because he wouldn't have done it. She's the one that came up with the plan. Says, Mom, she's the one that has the plan. She's the one that sent him on his path. What about her? But some of you might say, well, wait a minute, isn't she just following God's plan? Because back in 25, back in, ver in chapter 25, we see when she goes to God about these warring babies in her stomach, and it's like, what is going on here? God says, well, there's two in your stomach, right? And one is stronger than the other. He says, but the older will serve the younger. What's God saying? The younger will get the birthright. The younger will get the blessing because the older will serve the younger. She knew what it meant. And all she's trying to do is help things along a little bit, right? But my question is, how'd that turn out? Not so well, did it? The ends don't justify the means here. So certainly Rebecca could have repented and stopped it. But she doesn't. But how about anybody else in the story? How about Esau? 
Some people look at Esau and think he's the, he's the, he's the patsy in this, right? I mean, he's the one that's duped out of the, but, it, but is that right? Is that really the way it is? Remember back in when we read about the birthright, it says that he despised his birthright, that he didn't care about it. It meant nothing to him. He just sold it away. Why do you think, I mean, you could conceive, right? Couldn't you conceive that he's thinking, well, you know, I'm dad's favorite. And regardless of what I do here, he's going to give me that blessing. I am the oldest. I am his favorite. So sure, take the birthright. But think about it. He's called into his dad's tent, and he's told he's going to get the blessing. What could he have done? Well, Father, actually, I gave that birthright to Jacob. You should be giving this blessing to Jacob. If anybody was stealing the birthright, was it not Esau? Could Esau not have repented and stopped the escalation of conflict? What about Isaac? Certainly when God spoke to Rebekah and told her of the two boys and, the, and that the younger would get the blessing, that she shared that with Isaac. And now here Isaac is saying, yeah, I'm not really keen on God's plan. And he's more interested in his stomach and what he wants, and he decides to go his own way. If anybody is working against the will of God, it's Isaac. Every one of these characters is trying to do things their way. And all it ends up doing is escalating the conflict into treachery. Not one of them succeeds in their way of ending the cycle of conflict, they only make it worse. At any point, one of them could have repented and ended the cycle. But their way was the most important way. But there's one other character in the story that we haven't looked at. Do you remember who his name is? His name is God. See, a lot of times we forget that, that this is his story. And this was his way. His way was that Jacob would get the blessing, which he did. But do you think about the amount of conflict that would have been avoided had they just followed God's way? Had they just done what he said to do? But they thought better. We see in this story that repentance is the next step for the reconciler. It's the step that could end conflict. If we would just repent and confess that we are imperfect, that God is the only perfect one. He is the one. He is the way. That's why Jesus says in John 14, I am the way. Not I know a way, I am the way. Jesus, his life is the way to reconciliation. And his way is one of humility not one of repentance because he needed not repent. He himself was perfect, but his way was one of humility, which is required for repentance. Dropping to our knees and admitting that I'm sinful, that I'm not perfect, that maybe, well, just maybe, I might have something that I've done there's something maybe that I bear responsibility for in this conflict. And maybe the thing that I need to do is to take a cue from my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and humble myself. 
The Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter two that in your relationships with one another, have the very mindset of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a human being, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ, the only true perfect person, the one without fault, humbled himself so that we could be reconciled to God, showing us the way to reconciliation. That if he looks at me, sinner, someone who, who was at odds with him, someone who was an enemy of his, and when he sees me in conflict, he turns to his father and he says, Father, forgive him. Or he, he doesn't know what he's doing. And he reminds us that when we find ourselves in conflict, when someone has wronged us, just as the whole world wronged Jesus, he says to us, I had mercy on you. I had mercy on every one of you. And then he says, go and do likewise. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think of others as better than yourselves. We drop to our knees and we repent and we say to God that we are thinking of ourselves as greater than we should. The person that's wronged us, we think we're better than they are. But in reality, we're no different. We're the same. And we drop to our knees and we thank God that we are forgiven. And we admit that we are not without sin. It's a, it's a state of humbleness that begins reconciliation, a humbleness that begins in me. That I drop to my knees admitting I'm not perfect. We stop saying, I never would have done that. I never would have cut that person. You've never seen me drive like that. You've never seen me say that. No, 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 we stop and we drop to our knees and we confess, I've done the same thing. I've said the same thing, maybe not in this situation, but I'm no better, but I am forgiven. And it's in that in that posture of humility that we go forward offering reconciliation. The next step that we're called to is one of repentance. Repentance is the doorway to reconciliation. It is the only way to reconciliation. To go forth in pride is not the way. But to go forth in humility, repenting is the doorway to repentance. My question for all of you this morning is, which way will you choose? Which way will you continue to go your way, believing that in the end it'll all work out right? Or will you choose the reconciler's way? Will you choose Jesus's way? Will you humble yourself before God 
before the person that's wronged you? Will you humble yourself and admit before God that you yourself are no better? Will you choose the reconciler's journey? Will you come back next week as we look at the next step in reconciliation, that of forgiving and being forgiven? Come back next week. Pray with me.